Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This is Karen Stefano, author of the story collection, The Secret Games of Words. And we are rebooting this podcast after uh, a little bit of a hiatus. And uh, today with me is Carol Firstman, the author of the book, Origins of the Universe and What It All Means. Carol, thanks for being with me today. Thank you, Karen. I'm so thrilled to be here. This is very exciting. I know, I know, it is. And I just wanted to say before uh, we got started how happy I was to get to run into you at AWP. It was so good to see you. <laughs> yeah, that was great. Yes, it was great to see yeah. you. We've, uh, we, Yeah, it's been a couple of years since we met at Breadloaf uh, and got to see yeah, each other face yeah, to face. Yeah, it has. <laughs> And you, I mean, you've had such a trek lately promoting this book. And I know just recently you had to fly oh, yeah. out to New York from California for your KGB reading. And then you went back to yeah. California where 300 people I heard showed up yeah. for your reading. Yeah. And that's yeah. amazing. And then back on a plane for AWP readings and festivities. So, um, yeah. So with all that uh, on on your back, I'm I'm really appreciative that you could make time to talk with me. Oh today. well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm exhausted, but I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, well, good. You're a trooper. So for for those of you listening who have not yet read this great book, um, I'm just going to read a, a blurb for you, so you so you get a taste for what this is about. Um, and, uh, and this is from the, the book jacket, actually, uh, real, real briefly. In her debut memoir, Carol Firstman traces her strained relationship with her eccentric and distant father, a gifted biology professor whose research on scorpions may have contributed to the evolutionary theories of Stephen Jay Gould. Through unexpected forms, from footnotes and diagrams to startling love letters and Saturday morning cartoons, Firstman struggles to reconnect with her estranged father and redefine herself as both a grown woman and a daughter. Part travel narrative, part cultural commentary, this genre-bending memoir contemplates the nature of parent-child relationships, the evolution of life on Earth, and origins, both physical and metaphysical. And... Uh, and that that's a lot to live up to, but that uh, the, it the book absolutely does. It's a, it's amazing. Um, it's really spectacular. It blew my mind. I I think I I pre-ordered it, and uh, the day it arrived, I was thrilled. And then I just I couldn't put it down. So I was probably one of the oh, first people great. out there to read the book. Um, yeah. <laughs> so Carol, before be, before I launch into some questions, um, are you up for reading a little bit for us? Maybe chapter oh, two. Oh, I would love to read. Yes, I would love to read chapter two. Yes. So um, it's a very short chapter, and uh, this uh, revolves around a memory I have as a child. So should I give a little bit of context, or just sort of jump in? Um, uh, well, I'll just, whatever you I'll like. just jump in. Okay, I'll just okay. jump in. Okay, all right. <laughs> so, uh, so when I was uh, when I was a kid, my, my my dad and I and my mom we did a lot of travels, and so this is centered around a, a particular memory that I have, um, and this is in the Mojave Desert of California, July 1969. 
Watch us. We barreled across the desert toward Death Valley, gray waves of heat seething from the highway. The top of the Carmen Ghia was off, and my mother's brown hair flew wildly around her sweating face. It was nearly noon. The sun blazed directly overhead. It must have been 105 degrees by then. The engine ran hot, and if we didn't get there soon, we'd overheat, stranded on the road. Me, in the back seat, sitting squarely in the middle, my legs folded, sticky white against white vinyl. I was five years old. My sweater was wrapped around my forehead like a turban, tight. The empty arms streamed behind in the wind, flapping between my shoulder blades. I pretended the sweater sleeves were my hair. Long, luxurious, sexy. Yes, sexy. Even at five, I knew what that meant. I had seen plenty of pictures. Glossy pages my father had thumbtacked to the wall at home. A mosaic of Playboy centerfolds next to his desk. All of them honey-skinned with waist-long hair draped between their breasts. My favorite was a Polynesian-looking woman with thick wooden bracelets and a tie-dye scarf knotted above one ear. One time, I stripped down to my blousey cotton underpants and wore the necklace I had found at the back of my father's bottom desk drawer, a peace sign pendant on a long, heavy gold chain, which I now assume a certain student had given him as a gift, and veiled the short, pixie-cut hair in a tablecloth. Alone in my parents' bedroom, I draped the tablecloth tightly around the top of my head and held it in place above one ear, like the woman in the photo. I paraded in front of the full-length mirror, stepping diagonally to one side, spinning abruptly on my heels in order to catch the chain's reflection as it bounced against my skin. The tablecloth billowed from my shoulders, then draped toward the center of my chest, framing the pendant that dangled just above my navel. Two more steps and turn again. Billow, sparkle, drape. Back and forth I went in front of the mirror, pivoting so quickly I almost lost my balance. In the car, I imagined myself again as that Polynesian woman. I bounced with the road beneath us, beneath the tires, tires that smelled like tar in that heat. Up ahead, the asphalt ribboned up and down like a gentle roller coaster. I held my breath every few seconds, just for an instant each time. It helped me hold on to that falling feeling in my stomach, falling with each decline. Yes, now again. Faster, I yelled. Or maybe I just thought it. Faster. That summer, my mother was 24, a grad student studying plant pathology. My father was 41, a professor at Cal Poly Pomona. His mission to collect spiders, specimens for his class on the evolution of arachnids, meant a working getaway weekend for him, for us. Underneath the passenger seat, a shoebox rattled with empty jars and half-filled bottles of formaldehyde. Several times that day and throughout the weekend, 
My father pulled over when he got the whim. He traipsed through the gravel on his hands and knees. My mother carried the box of jars while he peered between rocks. He captured scorpions, tarantulas, and desert weevil beetles with an overturned glass jar and three-by-five index card covered with obsolete to-do lists or random notes to self, like milk, cottage cheese, bread, or arterial system, periintestinal vascular membrane. Recently, while clearing out my father's home, I found a box of letters and a tattered card on which was scratched, fondly, P. There in the desert, with one swift move, he would flip the jar and the card, drop the live spider into another jar filled with formaldehyde, then screw on a lid to seal it tight. Death was instant, then back to the car. Behind the wheel, my father stepped on the accelerator. He turned the radio dial. The mamas and the papas, California dreamin' blared from the dashboard. The words swept up by scarves of heat and spewed over the cactus sand. As an adult, the memories click for me like a slideshow, each landscape a framed portrait, isolated, self-contained, cropped. I recall a certain spot on the road to Furnace Creek, somewhere in the middle of that expansive desert. The Kodachrome slide in my mind features a straight segment of highway, one lane in each direction, divided by a double yellow line. Black asphalt shoots diagonally across the frame from the bottom right to the top left, leading the eye from a textured foreground to a blurry westbound destination. Along the road is a diamond-shaped sign with an arrow pointing to the right. So it seems contradictory, a warning for an upcoming right turn on what appears to be a straight stretch of road. Surely it's just my memory that's cropped the actual curve in the road from the snapshot frame. Surely my parents saw the road and the curve too. High noon. Through the wind, my mother silently argued with my father, her lips pinched, her eyes narrowed to slits. My father didn't curse or raise his voice. He just stated the facts. Her name is Pat, he said. She needs a pad, a place to crash, just for a while, a few weeks. My mother stared out the windshield, the back of her neck splotched red heat rash, perhaps. No reason to get bent out of shape, my father said. If you want to keep living with me, and I want you to, the house is plenty big. Pat can live downstairs. Otherwise, you're free to go. My mother still said nothing, just turned her head to the right, her eyes trained on a yucca plant rooted in the roadside gravel. Its pointy leaves barbed dangerously close to our car. We zoomed past the white bloom arching, swaying overhead, swaying above my shirt sleeve hair. And that's the end of that excerpt. <laughs> wow, Carol. Um, it's even 
more mind-blowing hearing you read that. Um, really uh, a great start to this uh, amazing book. And I was sitting here reading along with you in my copy, and um, I'm, I'm one of those people who just marks up every book she ever reads. And um, I, I um, had all these underlines on uh, on yours in this chapter, and I've got these little arrows um, at various paragraphs, and it says mm-hmm. time movement, time movement. And you, in this chapter and all throughout the book, you move so artfully back and forth through time, and it mm-hmm. just, it you know, it just it, it blows my mind how how smooth you are. Um, what, what what's what's your trick? I mean, what do you what would you say is the trick to achieving this kind of movement back and forth on the page without snagging your reader? You know that that is a great question. Um, you know, movement through time. Like I spend a lot. I spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to move through time. <laughs> it just it didn't come <laughs> easy for me. <laughs> Believe me, a lot of trial and error. But, you know, I think I have, like, okay, so for me, because it is, it's very tricky to move back and forth. So for me, there's, um, so in my mind, there's kind of, like, three main, like, time frames, like, whenever you're writing. So there's the past. We all know there's past tense. But then you can go beyond that, and I call it the past past, (laughs) right? So there's the past, there's the past past. Or there's come forward and then there's the present time. And sometimes the present is the future. Or sometimes there's a fourth time frame beyond present, which is future. So you're going to have like either three or four time zones that you're going to need to work within, at least for me. And so um, to navigate through those, I kind of find that it comes down to sort of two things. One is... I have a set of trigger words that I use to bring the the reader's mind back to where I want them to be. And then the other Mm -hmm. part has to do with paragraphing, like where each paragraph begins and ends in in time. So to give you an example as to what I'm talking about, um, so this section that I read, it actually has its own narrative arc. So in this arc, we're driving in a car in 1969, and we know that it's high noon. In fact, that is all established in the very front line because in the title it says, you know, uh, it says uh, Death Valley, uh, Central California, July 1969. And in the very first sentence, it says, we barreled across the desert, gray waves of heat. Um, It was nearly noon. So you learn that like right away. So we're immediately placed in time. And then the arc of this whole section really in it's set in past tense. So we're in 1969 and it begins there and it ends there. Okay. And that's, that's where we are for the most time. But then when it's time to move back and forth. Okay. So that's when I come to these trigger words and I use a location or a physical object that I had mentioned earlier as a way to bring the reader back. So like, for example, at the, on the, the first section, the very beginning, we're driving, everybody knows we're driving in the car, and now I'm going to go into my first memory about 
about the remembering the uh, Playboy mosaics that my dad had pinned on the wall. Well, that happened before we were in the car. So that's a simple use of the word had, and I use it twice. Like, I had seen plenty of pictures, you know, uh, my father had pinned them on the wall. So I use the word had twice. That takes us back into the, the past past. And then it's just simple past tense while I'm in the past past. No more hads after that. And then to bring us back forward again, okay, so then I want to come back. So at the end of that little memory of me being in the room, um, uh, watching myself in the mirror with the tablecloth, now I want to go back to the car. So the very first couple of words in the next paragraph are back in the car. I imagine myself again as that Polynesian woman. So that brings us back to the car mo- moment. And then, um, and then a few, a couple of paragraphs later, okay, so now we've been, we're, we're in the desert, right? And now I want to talk about something that happened recently to me as an adult. So in the middle of that paragraph, I say, I actually just use the trigger word, recently, while cleaning out my father's home, I found a box of letters, yada, yada, yada. There's a few sentences there about those letters that I found. And then the last sentence of that paragraph says, then back to the car. So there's that trigger. So I'm, I'm using that car as that trigger. And I use it several times during the chapter that's usually my trigger, as I mentioned, the car, and it brings us back to the car. Another trigger that I use is the time in here. So we knew in the first sentence we were at noon, right? And so then a couple of times during this chapter, you probably didn't even notice while I was reading it, but I refer to the time of day that it's noontime or the sun is directly overhead. So those are sort of my kind of... That's sort of my strategy for this section, and this was okay. So, I have to, so I, a lot. I, Carol, I, I just I just have to say you just gave um, a semester's worth of how to move back and forth in time um, in like five minutes of description. I mean, oh, wow. I, I swear. I mean, I, I, everyone. I hope that everyone listening to this podcast has a copy of your book open and is listening to this and furiously scribbling down notes because this is just. Um, un- unbelievably helpful for anyone um, who wants to uh, really master the art of time in in uh, creative nonfiction memoir. Oh well, so, good. Yeah, my, my more since if you were seeing it printed on the page, I don't know if it really. Yeah, it might be hard to follow. No, it no. It, it, <laughs> I, I mean, I've I've read it. I've I've read it, um, and I just heard you read it, um, but. Uh, you know, even for those listening who who haven't yet read your book, uh, that's I mean, an incredibly, incredibly uh, helpful uh, explanation and master's worth of information in five minutes. You can you can beat that. Um, uh, but you know, I also wanted to say that um, you know, talking about the the book globally again, um, in, in preparing for this conversation, I read uh, several of the great reviews this book has gotten, and I looked at some of the marketing material, like the book jacket and, and whatnot, and the focus throughout 
is on your strained relationship with your brilliant, eccentric scientist of a father. But so Mm -hmm. much of the book deals with your relationship with your mother. And I I just wanted to ask you, do you agree that she's at the the center of the story as well? And how do you feel about readers' apparent focus on your father? Mm, Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, um, and, and uh, you're, I do agree with you that even though it's really about my dad, but my mom does play a central role in this book. Um, mm-hmm. And at first, I didn't think my mom was going to be in the book at all. I thought it was only going to be about the father-daughter relationship. And and still, even though my mom's interwoven, I feel I, I do feel a little bit bad. I'm like, well, you know, my dad really wasn't there for me growing up, but my mom was. My mom raised me, but yet he gets all these pages dedicated towards him, right? Yeah. And um, and yeah. I and I. And I, I think I even addressed that at some point in the book. I'm like, hey, you know, I re- realized that dad gets all the page time when mom really put in all the hard work. So, but the way my mom came about and actually being in the book, she kind of, um, she came about in the book for, for kind of like for two reasons. Um, for one um, is, you know, I'm really writing about my personal origins, like where do I personally come from? My dad's interested in the origins of the universe and the origins of mankind and animals on the planet, right? I'm interested in my personal origins. Where did I come from, my family of origin? So if I'm really trying to examine my father closely in a way to figure him out so that I can in turn figure myself out, in a way, they're sort of inexplicably, I mean, they're just sort of, they're melded because they're both my parents. So in some ways, it was natural that I had to talk about my mom because things would just come up and they would, and it would need explanation. And so there are some logistical things that came in through there in that way, like to get background information in that. Then the other way that my mom came into the book was I really kind of broke the cardinal rule of writing. Like, like you know, like they kind of say, oh, you know, don't write about something while you're actually going through it. At least that's my own cardinal rule. I don't know if it's anybody else's, but my, I usually don't write about something until I'm done living through it. I have long ago processed all the emotional stuff that goes with that, and now I'm ready to write about it so that I'm not really working through my emotions on the page. I'm not creating a diary for myself. I'm creating a piece of literary art out of real-life events. Okay, that's the ideal. That's, you, know, you write about it after you process it. But while I was writing the book, I'm, I'm like right in the middle of writing the book, that's when my mom actually in real life had the catastrophic illness that I talk about in the book. Yeah. So... So really, in real time, I'm really going through all of the the medical stuff and her rehabilitation and diving into taking care of her house and her finances and her legal stuff and all of the frustration that came with that. So that was so that was such a major part of my life. I could hardly find time to actually finish writing the book. And what I ended up doing was, 
Every time I sat down to write, like, okay, I'm going to write uh, this section about my dad's story, right? I already know what part of the story I'm going to write about. But before I could actually write anything about that, I had to, like, kind of open up a separate, separate document, and I had to journal about all the frustrations that were going on in my daily life. I had to sort of, like, get all of that stuff out on the page first just to clear my mind so that I could start writing about whatever it is that I had planned to write about, about my dad. Well, I mean, that, you know, after a couple of months of that, I'm like, my gosh, this is like part of the story. (laughs) And so my mom's real time illness became a thread in, in the story a a pretty major thread. (laughs) So, so the journey that you did to clear your head, I mean, did that, Um, did you use any of that in the book or was that, did that just kind of get you to the place where you could, you know, weave in the thread of your mom into the book? I'm just curious. You know, I think it, yeah, that's, um, I think really it got me to the place where then I can go back to that material and then actually write like publishable stuff that would that would mm-hmm. weave into the book. At first, it's just really like me venting on the page. And right. then here's it's, another little you know, side yeah. story. Yeah. yeah. So while I, I, this book, this manuscript, actually started out as my my thesis in my MFA MFA program. So so I was like getting an MFA in creative writing, and I was meeting every week. I was just taking thesis units at this point, and I'm supposed to be writing on my book while my mom gets sick, right? So I'm supposed to be meeting with my thesis advisor every week to show him what I have written during the previous <laughs> week. And a lot of times I couldn't write in, I couldn't write anything or much because I was so taken up with taking care of my mom. Yeah. So sometimes I would like journal all this stuff that had happened. And then when I would meet with my advisor, I'd say, I'm sorry, I don't have anything to show you because mm. I was writing about this in my journal. And he's like the Socrates of all mentors. He would say, so but tell me what you wrote about about your mom. And then he would ask me questions. And how does how does that reflect on the writing that you would like to be doing about your dad? And it was that question and answer thing that 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 helped me discover, oh my gosh, this is a story thread. So it started as one wow. thing, but through talking with somebody else, I realized I could turn it into something else. Yeah, and that's and that's what happens, I think, in the process of writing really good memoir. Um, you stumble upon previously unexplored emotional stuff. Yeah. And, that's uh, the perfect and, way to put it, yeah. 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 And uh, that, wow, that's, that's, um, that's, that that's really that's really interesting um and wow your advisor sounds amazing so um you're you are lucky um so uh, you know going back yeah going back to to your to your mother and um anyone who has dealt with an ailing aging uh parent uh knows how all-consuming it is um but at a certain point in the book you talk about you're wondering of whether you're a good daughter or bad. 
And those mm-hmm. are musings so many of us share. And it's a question that so many of us write about. And um, where, do you, where do you ultimately think you weigh in on that scale? Are you more good, more bad? And um, tell me, you know, no. briefly why. <laughs> and I don't know that any of us can answer that question objectively. Um, I, I, you yeah. know, I, 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 really, I really don't. But I'm, I'm asking you that very unfair question anyway. <laughs> you know, it depends on which day you ask me. <laughs> Sometimes I think, yeah, yes, yeah. I am a good daughter. I do my best, and I try to do and say the right things. But, you know, on, on other days, or maybe it depends on which minute you ask me, I think, no, I'm terrible. I'm a terrible daughter. I don't do this, and I don't do that. Or, I, or even if I'm physically doing what I know I should do or saying what I know I should say, sometimes I think evil thoughts in my head. <laughs> I'm, I'm impatient. Yeah. Or, you know, and it's funny because um, a lot, and I thought, oh, gosh, I shouldn't be. I was worried about this book being published because I thought, well, everybody's going to hate me because, you know, I talk about ways that I'm not a good daughter. And, um, but what really amazes me is how many people have come up to me and shared their own personal stories and their own angst over this very issue. And they, and people say, you know, this, Something that it's not really socially acceptable to talk about these frustrations, unless you're like with your very, very close friends. But um, it's something that a lot of us have in common (laughs) Uh because Uh it's not, there's no black and white answer in a lot of cases. It's like, well, some, some things are good, some things are bad. And, and I kind of have, and me personally, I feel like I have, one foot on one side of the answer and one foot on the other side of the answer. And I sort yeah. of straddle the yes and no answer a lot. I yeah, think I don't, I don't, that's a good I don't doubt that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I, I don't, I don't doubt that a bit. And um, as you know, um, I have an elderly mother um, suffering from dementia who's in assisted living. And, you know, that may be, again, that may be one of the many reasons I connected so much with this book um, is because to see it on the page, to see your internal angst and um, identify with it. And um, it's something, you know, it's something that has appeared a lot in my own fiction and, Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and then some, some essays that uh, are, are still, um, you know, still on a word doc on, on my desktop, but um, I, you know, I agree with you. I mean, it is something that needs to be written about because it's, it's hell. And, um, and uh, it's something that people can really connect with. And, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, you know, it, you know, people, people, uh, you know, need the therapy of, 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 of knowing that, that other people are uh, stumbling their way through and that, uh, that, you know, everybody's flawed and the mother daughter relationship uh, uh, is, is, is fundamentally flawed in in so many ways. And you never feel, Mm -hmm. yeah, like you say, black or white, good daughter or or bad. Um, But anyway, but I'm just, I was just thrilled uh, about the the way you wrote about it. But, um, Oh yeah. Thanks. yeah, yeah, absolutely. So shifting gears a little bit, um, 
I want to talk to you about your publishing journey. Um, uh, you published through the Zinc. I don't know if I'm saying it mm-hmm. right. Zinc books. Yes. Right? Yeah. Did I get Dezenc. that right? Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you did. <laughs> and um, okay. And um, what what was your publishing experience? with them like and did you have an agent how did you get connected with them I think um you know I'd say probably 99 percent of the people who listen to this podcast are writers and um I I think people are always interested in hearing hearing this this part of the story the story behind the story yeah the story behind the story like how did yeah (laughs) yeah you know it's um that's interesting I am my first um my first plan of attack was first I was um, querying agents, right? And I did what I did, you know, what we all do. Like we find, we like go, we, we seek out writers who either work we admire or we think that we have some similarities between their work and our work. And you kind of figure out who their agents are and, and you query. So I, I queried a lot of agents and I, I spent a couple of months doing that. And then, um, as those, you know, of course, and I expect, because I start with my A list, right? The ones that you're, ne- that are never going to get back to you. And as those were rolling in, right? Those rejections were rolling in. Um, <laughs> I decided, as I knew they would, right? I decided right. to to go ahead and, you know, I think while those are rolling in to stave off the depression of the rejections, I thought I'm next, I'm going to start, um, investigating in independent publishers um, like Dezenk and some of the other publishers where you don't necessarily need an agent to submit. And so I started investigating and I, and I submitted to a few independent publishers, actually not, not that many because I sent a ton out to agents and a few independent publishers. And also Dezenk happened to be having a contest. They they have an annual contest where um, they have like choose one nonfiction book for a prize and one fiction book for a prize. And so anyway, so I submitted to their contest and um, thought, well, I'll do this to stave off the depression, right? And so mm-hmm. and it's, it's mm-hmm. funny because for a while I didn't hear anything. You know, I submitted to the bank and and I didn't hear anything. Didn't hear anything. And I thought, well, you know, surely they've already chosen like who their winner was. And I was actually just about to withdraw my submission because I'm a little bit ADD and a little bit OCD and I couldn't stand the seeing on submittable that it said in progress when I was just sure that they had already (laughs) must have chosen a winner for that contest and so I was actually like I thought okay if I don't hear anything by Monday because it's been a couple of months now I'm just going to withdraw it well oh my gosh the stars were looking out for me because that Friday I got a phone call from Dezank that I had won their contest and wow. so with winning the contest comes offer of publication. So that's mm. how I landed with Dezank. You know, a lot of their authors are agented, but not all of them. And I, and I just met a, an author, one of the newest authors with Dezank. I just met her at AWP. She came and introduced herself to me. She submitted through the slush pile and, and wow. they chose her book through that. So, you know, my advice to all writers is submit, 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 you know, just yeah. keep submitting, yeah. like submit to as many as you can and just don't give up and 
if you feel depressed because you're getting those rejections, that's just your signal to, to go and submit some more. And I had it out to a whole bunch of places at once. Um, but, you know, once I, uh, once I signed on with Dizank, they've been absolutely wonderful. I mean, it's just been a dream come true. So there's a whole team of people there that work really, really hard, and they, they publish several titles a year, so I know they're really busy, but yet they, they give me a lot of attention. And so yeah, I that was my impression. Very yeah. closely with them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I work with their yeah. editors. I have two editors that I work with very closely, a graphic design person, a publicity person. So they have the That's whole amazing. team there. That's amazing. Well, this is, I mean, it is yeah, amazing. I knew, I, I don't know if like if it was just from, uh, you know, like an email with you early on, like when, when the book was was coming out, but I knew that you were very happy with them and, um, and you were really, really happy with the publicity and stuff. And so I, I, I knew that was a happy, that, that was a happy story. And, and I'm really, really glad to hear it. And I love this, this publishing journey story and everybody who's listening, um, I'm sure it's just making their hearts sing because, you know, anyone who's tried to get a book published knows uh, the the feeling of the the rejections just, oh, just pouring it's so in. Hard. And then, it's so it, hard. And then the feeling, the feeling of like, why am I even doing this? I mean, it, you know, yeah. how do I, mm-hmm. you know, you're trying to make something happen. You're trying so hard and you have so little control. So, um, Mm-hmm. This is this is a, a heartwarming story behind the story, and uh, and as I told you, um, our our time on these podcasts just flies by, and um, we're, um, so I'm gonna wrap start wrapping things up now. Um, believe it or not, okay. but um, oh my gosh, I, I'm gonna wrap this. I know, I know. Um, I, I'm gonna wrap this up with uh, with my favorite stolen question, uh, a question that I like to steal from the New York Times um, Sunday book review interviews. And um, that question is, and 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 I always didn't. This was always a less interesting question. I'm sorry when Obama was in office because it was just like, you know, he can read whatever he wants. He, he knows he's doing it right. Whatever he's reading, it's just perfect. But um, yeah, I feel differently. So uh, if you could require the president to read one book and one book other than your own, what would it be? Well. I would recommend that he read a book by the author's name is Chinrithin Him. It's spelled H-I-M. And her memoir, it's a true story, her memoir is titled When Broken Glass Floats. And Mm. it's a story about herself and her family she lived in Cambodia as a child in 1975 when the Khmer Rouge genocide was going on. And she and her family, there were 12 people in her family, were sent to the death camps. And their experience was horrifying, just jaw-dropping off on them again. Period. I'm getting choked up just thinking about it. It was quite a while that I read the book, but um, it's just horrifying experience in these death camps under this oppressive regime. And 
of the 12 people in her family, only five of them survived. Hmm. I'm getting choked up. So, yeah, I mean, um, so, so for four yeah. years, <laughs> so for four years, they were in these death camps. And finally, in 1979, she and her four surviving siblings were able to emigrate to the America, to the United States as refugees. And she oh, now, Jesus. I'm sorry, she now lives in Portland, Oregon. <sighs> so I really wish that he would read this book. And develop empathy for people who are living in other parts of the world and not turn a blind eye based on some policy that doesn't consider real people. So, anyway, okay, I'm done crying. Okay, all right, <laughs> now you, like, you, you okay, literally <laughs> made me cry. Okay, okay. Um, wow, okay, well, I live in D.C. now, as you know, so I'm going to buy that book and I'm going to march that over to the White House personally. So, uh, right. Okay. Because yeah, he, he needs to read that motherfucking book. So, um, yes, anyway, well, um, well, what a perfect way to wrap up our podcast, both of us in tears. So, um, <laughs> it's anyway, been lovely. Carol, thank you so much. I know Carol, thank you so much. You're amazing. Uh, you, you've taught me so much and uh, you're a wonderful writer and reader and person and uh, everybody please uh, go out and grab your copy of Origins of the Universe and What It All Means. Uh, you will not be disappointed. And with that, I'll say goodbye. Thanks. Okay, Carol. goodbye. Thank you so much. <laughs>